Well, good morning again. It's good to be together in worship. Given what we have so richly in common in Christ, and one of the special joys that we have as a church family is to see growth in our family. Not only spiritual growth, but numerical growth and physical growth. And it's my joy this morning to announce that one of our own little treasures in the church is engaged to be married. Mark and Kathleen, if you would stand and be acknowledged, congratulations to you both. Those of us that know Kathleen know how richly blessed young Mark is going to be, but I've got just a brief chance to meet Mark, and he seems to be a very exceptional young man as well, so we're grateful for you both and we'll be in prayer for your preparations as well as your life together. Join me in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 3. We finished 2. And none of you caught it. Was nobody paying attention just now? Oh. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Philippians chapter 3. I'd like to read down through verse 7 this morning, beginning verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Let's pray. Father, this morning... It is my hope that as we study together and as I I speak this morning, it is your Son, Jesus Christ, that will be clearly seen in his glory and in his sufficiency as we consider the sacrifice that he made on a cross on our behalf. As Paul is teaching this church in Philippi, so he is teaching Summit Park this morning. Allow me to have the words clearly spoken, but allow to us by your Spirit to have hearts and minds that clearly receive and understand and discern and are willing to be changed and transformed and sanctified because we've gathered under the authority of your word this morning. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As our young people this morning in children's church, or not children's church, but the Sunday school exercises this morning, Uh, A number of the classes were sharing with us that they've been studying the names of God. Um, And I was thinking, uh, I think Jacob or somebody even mentioned, we don't tend to name ourselves or our children the same way they did back in those biblical times. Um, My name, for instance, means mountain. Why would they give a guy of smaller stature a name like Monty, which means mountain. Um, Mine was just a family name, but probably most of us named our children either after family or 
uh, because we like the sound of it or we look back at some biblical name and we, we value or honor that person in God's word. But as we look at the names of God, there is a depth of meaning there that even comes out in our text this morning. I, want, I don't want us to miss a detail in Paul's writing. How often does he name the name of Jesus with that name Christ? Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ, meaning the Messiah of God, the anointed one. And how many times at work or out in the community do you hear the name Jesus Christ used in a vulgar way? And every time Paul declares this Jesus, it is almost always followed or preceded with Christ, the Messiah of God. That is something no Jew could do. They can't declare Jesus of the Bible to be Jesus Christ because they do not regard Jesus as the promised Messiah, the anointed of God. And so Paul's words are reflecting here a transformation from his Hebrew background. He understands his lineage well. He understands Christ, the promised Messiah. And he has found that promised Messiah in the Jesus that met him on the road to Damascus. This lays kind of the context for Paul's testimony this morning. As we've seen under this particular heading in these first six verses of chapter 3, we are understanding the glory of what it means to be in Christ. And we saw a touch of that last week in the first two verses, especially verse 1, where we're to rejoice. It's a commandment for us to be filled with joy in Christ. And the importance of that statement of rejoicing in Christ. In other words, we're making a distinction in regard to the happiness that we enjoy as Christians that the rest of the world cannot. To be in Christ is to be a gospel people. But as Paul is pointing out to the church, not only in chapter 3, but in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, to be in Christ means that we are to be walking in Christ. And in the context of this letter, he means walking together as a church unified in Christ. It is the only way we're going to experience this kind of gospel joy. It is found in this Christ, this Messiah, in Jesus, the one that was rejected by Israel, but God has exalted as the rock of our salvation. This is what Paul treasures in the gospel. And we have to understand his passion for this if we're going to handle verses like verse 2, which almost appears vulgar and harsh, but Paul's passion for Christ as the Messiah of God is coming out because in his day, the name of Jesus was also kicked around and maligned and mistreated. And sometimes it's even mistreated by those who claim to belong to Jesus, as in the case of the Judaizers. Last week, we looked at the instruction and the warning that Paul is giving to the church in Philippi. Find your joy in Christ. And for two chapters leading up to chapter 3, he's been instructing the church, even this church, on how we can experience that kind of Christian gospel joy in spite of the circumstances around us. And it's based on how we are finding ourselves alive and living daily in Christ Jesus. But there is also a warning given here. 
And we're going to continue on with this understanding of the warning that Paul is giving to the church because there is a great threat then as there is today towards this gospel joy and it is found in the doctrines of Christ himself, the doctrine of the gospel. And this is where we find Paul's passion just oozing out of his pores to the extent that he would call these false teachers, these false preachers of the gospel, dogs, evil workers, and mutilators of their body in verse 2. If that isn't offensive enough, as we move into verse 3, there are more offenses that Paul is willing to communicate in regard to these false preachers that had come in to the early church. And again, these Judaizers, if you remember from previous studies, even our study in Galatians, were those that claimed to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith, but then they added the works of the law on top of faith. In other words, you are saved by faith plus works, plus your own merits. And leading the way in that work or that merit is this issue of circumcision, which is a priority in the Jewish mindset, a ritual that marked them out as God's own people, God's own possession. These Judaizers came in behind Paul so often in the cities that he ministered to, preaching this false gospel. And nothing could be more clear in regard to Paul's sentiments on those preachers than we find in Galatians chapter 1, where he says, when this gospel is preached, it is no gospel at all. Salvation cannot be found in this false witness. It is a perversion, and they are deserting Christ when they preach it, even though these false preachers were naming the name of Jesus Christ, claiming him to be the promised Messiah. The moment they added works to faith, it ceased to be a gospel. And Paul even went as far to say these preachers, these false preachers, are to be accursed of God and cursed by the church as well. In other words, they are not gospel preachers. They are not giving the Christian hope that is found in Christ alone. They are giving a false gospel. This is what is underlying, or the undercurrents of today's study as well, which leads us to understand that these Judaizers had made their way into the city of Philippi, and for, in some way they are now affecting the believers there in the church in Philippi. Our study this morning is going to pick up in verse 3. And we're going to focus on two words this morning. Last week, we looked at instruction to rejoice in the Lord and the warning to watch out for false gospel preaching in the church. This morning, that warning continues, but Paul is going to emphasize now worship and the glory that we have in Christ or that we are to be having in Christ. Now, having given that stern warning to the church in verse 2, Paul continues his argument that the true Christian is not the one who's attempting to merit salvation or in any way to contribute to salvation, to God's saving grace, with their own works, even the works of the law that God gave to Israel. This truth is developed more fully by Paul as he affirms that he is joined with the Philippians as those who are the true circumcision. Notice how verse 3 opens that way. Paul says, we, me, together with you, 
Again, that fellowship of the church is very dominant in this text, as it is throughout this whole letter. We are the true circumcision. Now we think about that for a moment. Paul has the right to say that. But in talking about these Philippian believers, remember these were largely Greek or Gentile converts who had not been circumcised, but were being convinced or there are attempts to convince them to be circumcised by these Judaizers. Paul is saying, don't do it. Don't follow after their teaching because we are the true circumcision of God. I mentioned in a joking way to John when I sent him the text yesterday that there are certain words in the Bible that tend to make you blush just a little bit in speaking them. And I've, done, I've felt this way before in reading other passages, especially like you get into Song of Solomon or Proverbs 5, and it talks about certain body parts. And to stand up in front of you all and to say these words can be a little bit uncomfortable, but I want you to notice the Word of God does not blush on things that have to do with the gospel. And in the providence of God, this issue of circumcision is His thing. And God is not shy to repeat this word again and again and again because of the depth of its meaning. We touched on this last week, but we're going to be looking at this more fully this week. Paul is saying here to these Philippians, you have never been circumcised, but you and I both are the true circumcision of God. And this is where they're finding their joy. This is what we rejoice in. And we need to understand this as well because this is our joy as well this morning. You and I, largely not Jewish here this morning, and we haven't participated in any saving rituals that merit our salvation, but you and I are the true circumcision. And we rejoice in this, whether we're male or female, young or old, if we're in faith, the gospel this morning, this is our identity. And this was important to Paul. And the Holy Spirit drives him to have an understanding of circumcision and pass that understanding on to the church in Philippi. Verse 3 would have been equally offensive to the Jews and certainly the Judaizers that were trying to promote circumcision. How dare Paul say that these Greeks, these Gentiles, who had nothing to do with the nation of Israel, had not participated in the rituals, how dare he say they are the true circumcision. That would have been offensive to the Jewish community and equally offensive to the Judaizers who were trying to convince the church of this ritual, this Old Testament law practice. As we noted last week from Colossians chapter 2, circumcision was intended to represent the heart of sin in man that is cut out and discarded. It was a sign ordained by God himself to his own chosen nation, Israel, that they be circumcised physically as a declaration of what must be required of God spiritually. And this is where we need to understand exactly what the sign of circumcision is, because it isn't baptism. The sign of circumcision was intended to declare that the heart of sin must be cut out. And that is the only means of salvation. Nothing else could accomplish this. Simply practicing 
circumcision meant nothing in itself. What is required for salvation, as Colossians 2 verse 11 said, is the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of whom? Christ. In other words, the heart of sin must be dealt with. And that Old Testament ritual was a sign or a symbol of that spiritual reality that could only be accomplished by the gospel of Jesus Christ. His sacrifice alone is what accomplishes this circumcision. And we represent that this morning in the partaking of the bread and the cup together. Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29 goes on with Paul teaching about this as he said, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and, un- and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit. That's why Paul could say to the Philippians, We are the true circumcision. Not because anything on the flesh has been tampered with, but because Christ has cut out the heart of flesh, the heart of sin, and it's been discarded. And the symbolism is is probably clear to most of us that are older this morning and understand what circumcision does physically. Because the sin nature, human depravity, is passed on through procreation. And therefore, God ordained this physical sign would represent what only Christ could do, what only his son would accomplish in the dealing of the hearts. And so Paul is very bold to say to even the Roman church, just because you're born a Jew doesn't mean you're a Jew. The true Jew, the spiritual Jew, is the one who has has received Christ by faith, and he, Christ, is the one that has cut out that heart of sin and cast it aside. We are now covered as believers by the righteousness of Christ. Yes, we continue to sin, but that heart of sin has been changed inwardly. We are a new creation in Christ. The old things have passed away. Everything has become new. The old man, as Paul writes, has been laid to rest, and we are raised up new in Christ because of what Christ and Christ alone has done. This is the very heartbeat of the gospel, isn't it? And so we can understand Paul's passion when these Judaizers roll into town and say, wait, wait, we agree with the gospel. We affirm Jesus as Messiah. Yes, by faith you receive him to be saved, but you cannot fully be saved unless you become a Jew. And the priority was placed on this ritual of circumcision to identify that one is truly saved. Paul said it's no gospel at all. You've perverted the truth. You've distorted the very person of Christ here. And in the fourth chapter of Romans, as John pointed out this morning, this discussion is carried further using Abraham as a proof of this doctrinal understanding. What doctrine is that? The doctrine of circumcision, which takes us right to the very heart of the gospel. Abraham was justified by God through faith long before he was circumcised. That means the moment Abraham believed in God, God circumcised his heart. He was circumcised before he was ever circumcised. And the outward circumcision of the flesh was nothing more than a symbol or a sign 
of what faith in God accomplishes. And therefore, the physical or the outward could never save. It was never intended to save. The outward practice was only to symbolize what was needed in the heart and what is needed in the heart today, that the heart of sin in man must be cut out and discarded, a work that only can be done by the Spirit of God through faith. Faith in Christ had caused the Philippians to be the true circumcision of God. Again, this would have been offensive to the Jewish community and the Judaizers. But to Paul, this is precious doctrine. This is precious gospel territory. And man had better not tamper with it. We don't compromise with these doctrines. We don't compromise the gospel itself. The bad news for the Jews was that they could never claim to be the people of God simply because they were practicing the law. Neither could the Judaizers claim to be saved because they were practicing the law alongside of faith so as to be saved. Not the flesh, but the heart must be circumcised by Christ. And only faith in his sacrificial atonement could accomplish that kind of heart surgery. Paul then identifies the characteristics of those who are saved in contrast to those who are trusting in a corrupted gospel that can never save. And so Paul moves on in verse 3. You think circumcision was an offensive doctrine. Paul goes on further to say that only those that are in Christ by faith can be worshipers of God. Imagine how that would have sounded to Israel to the Pharisees, to the Jewish community. The only true worshipers of God are those that are found in faith in Christ. For we are the true circumcision, it says in verse 3, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Messiah Jesus, the anointed one of God. Paul says that those who are truly circumcised of the heart by faith in Christ are those who worship in the Spirit of God. His implication here is that only those who are saved by faith alone can worship God and that all others are, guess what? Not worshipers of God. And he even goes on to prove that in his former Hebrew state, in his former condition as an unsaved Israelite, a Benjamite, a circumcised Benjamite. Of course, this would have cut to the very heart of the Jewish community who thought they themselves were entitled to be called worshipers of Jehovah God. In fact, even today, such a declaration is going to be considered extremely offensive to our highly ecumenical religious culture. It is one thing to say that we have differing faiths with the world around us. It's as well as something to be said that we have different practices and different beliefs within those differing faiths. And the world can handle that kind of declaration. They can handle the fact that we say, well, we're a little bit different and we do things differently. Everybody understands that, but it is quite another matter to say that those other faiths, those other religious traditions do not worship God. That's where things get a little bit sticky. And that's where it becomes a bit offensive for us as gospel preachers to declare we alone in Christ by faith are true worshipers of God. 
and all others are not. They may worship, but they do not worship the God of creation. And unless we do preach this, we cannot draw others to Christ and his gospel. This is because every other religion preaches human effort that either secures salvation or in some way contributes to it. And Paul is making clear, if man does that to the gospel, if they attempt to contribute in any way to the gospel, it no longer is a gospel. If our evangelism only promotes the Christian gospel as one of many ways to worship God, one of many ways to approach God, we betray Christ to support salvation by works and we offer no incentive for sinners to seek out Christ, who is the only name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Liberal theologians and preachers today can make most any claim they want to about the Apostle Paul, and they most certainly do. But there is no way that they can legitimately suggest that Paul was an open-minded man in regard to other religions. By the very strength of his language, the boldness of his words, he is declaring as passionately and as clearly and as dogmatically as he can. There is salvation and hope only in Jesus Christ and only in the Jesus Christ of Scripture. Paul makes certain that the Philippians understand that worship is that which is worked within the believer by the Spirit of God. True worship is therefore not an outward action of mankind, but it's an inward work of the Spirit. Worship is often described as that which expresses the very worth of God. And Paul is no exception. He understands that worship expresses what is true of God, the depth of God, who He is. John MacArthur makes this statement. John MacArthur makes this statement. (laughs) Well, I've pushed all the buttons I can push. I pushed it off. (laughs) One of these days, I'm going to figure this thing out, just not today. He says, worship might be best translated to render respectful spiritual service. True worship goes beyond praising God, singing hymns, or participating in a worship service. The essence of worship is living a life of obedient service to God. The essence of worship is living a life of obedient service to God. As Paul teaches here in chapter 3, worship must be the work of the Holy Spirit within us. And this is only possible when the Holy Spirit indwells a person. And this is what Paul taught in Romans chapter 8, if you recall from memory. In that chapter, Romans chapter 8, Paul makes clear that only those that are in Christ truly have the Spirit of the living God. How do we know we have the Spirit? Paul goes on to say, well, are you being led by the Spirit? That's how you know you're indwelt by the Spirit. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, however, he writes, you are not in the flesh any longer, but in the Spirit meaning the Holy Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he, Jesus Christ, is not his. 
You don't belong. That's pretty much an exclusive declaration, wouldn't you say? Only those that are found in Christ have the Spirit. And if you want to know if you have the indwelling Spirit of Jesus Christ within you, ask yourself this question, am I being led by the Spirit? Am I living obediently to the Spirit? Look at Galatians 5. Am I manifesting the fruit of the Spirit's work within me as defined by the Word of God? Love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. True worship must come from within a man, and it must be the work of God's Spirit within us. And this is what Jesus also taught as he met with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Please go there, John chapter 4. We're going to look at a phrase that Jesus repeats several times to make very clear we understand what true worship is and what it looks like. Because there's a whole world of religions out there that are claiming they are worshipers of God or a God. And Jesus says here, no, there is only one worship of God. In John chapter 4, verse 23 and verse 24, Jesus Messiah himself says, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Notice that worship in spirit and truth. It will be repeated. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Twice repeated so that there's no mistake. God seeks true worshipers. They will only be those the worship in spirit and in truth. Paul is saying in Philippians 3, that worship is a work of the Holy Spirit within our spirit. To truly worship God means it must come from within us because it's a work of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God. And it must not only come from within us, it must be in accord with the truth of God himself. What we discern from these passages is that God the Father will only accept worship from those who express the truth about him from within a heart that is owned by the Spirit and worked by the Spirit of God. And as Romans 8 makes clear, for our spirit to express truth of God in a worshipful way will require our spirit to be indwelt by his spirit. It's under the management of the spirit of God, under new management, we would say. Only then can we express truth to God that he is worthy to have from us. Worship is then not limited to music. It's not limited to praise that comes from our lips. Worship is the obedient response of truth about God by those whom he is indwelling within. Worship involves every part of our lives and our being to worship God in spirit and in truth as he requires. Means that we will respond toward him in love. We'll serve Him. We will praise Him. We'll reverence Him from our very hearts. We'll forsake sin. We are going to confess sin, continually repent of sin. Do you realize repentance is worship? Confessing of sin is worship. Giving way to temptation is not. Confessing that, that's worship. 
We will think well of him. We will think well of his redeemed family. We're going to listen to him through the word of his spirit. We're going to live in grateful worship of him because that's what he is worthy of. That's worship. But all of these expressions of worship cannot happen through the, unless, except through faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ. We can't come to this place of being worshipers of God except through faith in Christ. This is what Paul is teaching the church in Philippi. We're the true circumcision. We're the true Jews. We're the true worshipers of God. Friends, this is what we declared this morning based on the doctrine of the gospel itself. We don't say so with arrogance, but we are the true circumcised. We are true worshipers. We are the true Jews. Even though we may not have any heritage or lineage connecting us to the nation of Israel. This is how critical faith in the gospel is. This is how powerful the faith in Christ is. And this brings Paul to say also something about our boast or our glory in Christ. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God, and we glory in Christ Jesus. But we need to connect that statement, we glory in Christ, with what follows, with that Greek word chi or and. We glory in Christ and what? We put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is using both a positive declaration and a negative, and the two must be seen together. And I say that because in our worship of God, in our praise of Christ, That extends into all avenues of praise. With music, with our lips, we praise God as we serve Him. We praise God as we boast of Christ. And we speak of His greatness and His majesty, His deity, His sacrificial atonement. But here in verse 3, Paul has something very specific. Not broad, but very something something very specific in mind when he says we are boasting of Christ. He's not saying we're just bragging on everything that Jesus is. We are boasting on his redemption alone and we take no confidence in the flesh. Paul has something very specific in mind here. The common word for glory comes from the Greek word doxa, where we get the word doxology or a hymn, or a declaration of praise to God. That is not the word that Paul is using here in verse 3. Rather, a better rendering or a better meaning of the word glory here is that of boasting in Christ or exalting Christ. What is he saying? We boast that in Christ alone is salvation, and we take no confidence from the flesh. Do you see what he's saying? We boast in Christ alone as the Savior. And we contribute nothing to that. We put our faith in the Savior because He's a sufficient Savior. Our boast is in Him, not in self. We take no confidence in self or self-accomplishments. What Paul is saying is that Christians glory or boast only in Christ and we can contribute nothing to Christ. We boast in Christ and not in Christ plus self. The point that is made here is that circumcision is a work of the flesh when it is used as a means to secure God's saving grace. In addition, so is every other human endeavor. 
And ever since the proclamation of the gospel, Satan has been attempting to pervert that gospel, even so subtly, so that there can be these large religious dominions with theaters and cathedrals and doctrines that boast of Christ and they hang up the Christ, Christ crucified on the cross. They claim to worship Christ and they make much to do of Christ. But then they add on top of faith, you must all do this. You must merit the grace of God. You must add or contribute to Christ's sacrifice. You must add to faith. And we ask the question that has been asked for 2,000 years, can that still also be the gospel? To add anything to faith in Christ, is that the gospel? Well, in Paul's mind, no, it is not. So what has changed today? And I say this because it's so easy for us to look at our religious neighbors who may even speak, speak honorably of the name of Christ. And they embrace faith in Christ, but they add to that faith their own works, their own meritorious efforts. And they claim to be Christian too. What do we say of that? Well, we must say exactly what the Word of God says. It is no gospel to add our own works to faith in Christ because He, the Savior, is sufficient. He's the anointed one of God. He's the Messiah. In Him we put our confidence. But we put no confidence, no confidence in the flesh, in what we can conjure up, in what we can do in our own righteousness, even if that righteousness is obedient to the laws that God Himself gave to his covenant people. This is the message that Paul brings to the church. Now to further establish this argument, Paul is willing to use his own testimony before he came to Christ and be examined in his own efforts and his own zeal for God. So consider as we move beyond verse 3 how Paul is going to use verse 4, 5, and 6 as a proof text from his own testimony to what he's driving home in regard to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 4, Paul presents himself as an example of someone who could possibly argue for exceptional conduct in his Jewish faith. And he writes, if anyone could make this claim, it would be him. He's saying to the church, I'm willing to have my own Jewish faith examined. And you will see, if you examine it, it is nearly perfect. He was willing to put that up against the Judaizers and the message that they were preaching. And this is not a claim that he had anything to contribute toward his salvation, for neither Paul nor those who ranked lower than Paul, namely the Judaizers, could excel enough to merit the grace of God. This is the very point that he makes. And this will be his clear testimony as he begins in verse 7 down through verse 11. By saying to Philippi, all of these things I count as loss. They mean nothing in honor of Christ and his gospel. But what he needs the Philippians to clearly understand is that false gospel preachers who were demanding circumcision be added to the gospel could never accuse him. These false preachers could never accuse him of not having adequate Jewish credentials. 
They could never fall back on the claim that Paul was just preaching faith alone because he had failed at his own Jewish religion. Two areas seem to be the focus of Paul's attention here. The confidence that Paul could have in his own self-achievements in practicing the Old Testament law, verse 4, and the zeal or the passion or the devotion that drove Paul to exhibit this religious uh, fervor. And we see that in verse 6, namely his zeal. So he's going to highlight the confidence that he has in his own practice as a Jew prior to Christ. And he's also going to allow us to examine his passion or zeal that he had in his own Jewish tradition prior to Christ. Paul begins his testimony by pointing out the confidence that he could have in his own flesh, meaning his own national identity, his personal adherence to the law. Verse 5 and 6 are then a kind of spiritual autobiography of self-confidence prior to his faith in Christ. Paul begins his counter-argument with that which was leading the way in this whole discussion, that of circumcision once again. And it's an interesting way he presents his own circumcision by saying, I was circumcised when? On the eighth day. Exactly how the law prescribed. The literal reading apparently is, I'm a circumcised eight-dayer. Why would he even bring that up? That he was circumcised on the eighth day. Well, the point that he wants to drive home is, Paul was no proselyte that was later brought into the community of faith. Most of these Judaizers, remember, were largely Greeks that had been brought in or proselytized into the Jewish tradition. So they were circumcised later, not Paul. He said, I want to, I'm legitimate. I was circumcised on the eighth day as a person born into Israel. If anybody has a right to the claim of the law, it's me. I'm one of those. He was born a Jew circumcised a Jew on the eighth day as the law prescribed, bringing him into the covenant community. Adding to this, he was actually born with the proper lineage into the nation of Israel, it said. I was born into Israel. He even names his tribe. <clears throat> Benjamin. I'm of Israel. My tribe of Benjamin. I've got the right paperwork. I've got the right pedigree. If you're going to purchase me as a Puppy, I got all the paperwork. My lineage is clear. I had puzzled over this Benjamite stuff a little bit because if you go back into the Old Testament, Benjamin's tribe wasn't necessarily all that honorable. They had its shining moments, but they also had their embarrassments, their dishonorable moments. <coughs> so why would Paul bring up that he's of the tribe of Benjamin? Well, it's my conviction or my belief that he's mentioning one specific tribe to give specific credibility to his own genuine lineage in the Jewish community. I know exactly my tribe. And in this day and age, many of the Jews, because their birth had become so convoluted or mixed with other tribes, they didn't really know what tribe specifically they were from. Paul did. I'm a Hebrew, born in Israel circumcised the eighth day. I came from a specific tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob's blood flowing in my veins. <coughs> Excuse me. Many of the Judaizers could not make this kind of a claim. 
because once again they were Greeks, proselytes. Paul had a clean bill of health here. Paul continued to build on his Jewish profile by boasting that he was an exceptional Hebrew, not just born into the family, not just there by blood and lineage, but he declared, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was an exceptional one. Which means that he was very careful to maintain a very clean bill of health and be very diligent about the Jewish traditions and heritage. He held to the Hebrew language. Paul is one that still knew his own native tongue. He spoke in Greek, but he knew Hebrew. The traditions, the customs of the Jewish faith, he adhered strictly to those. And in regard to keeping the law, he said, I was a Pharisee. He was one of the religious elite, a very strict group that held very tightly to the law. To witness the Pharisee is to witness a very ethical, a very moral man, one that is very obedient to the law, in spite of the fact they held to the traditions that added to the law of Moses. They held to strict obedience to the law. So Paul is saying, look, if you're going to examine anybody on their Jewish credentials, me more than any, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee. In Acts, it says he was the son of a Pharisee. It was the family business. Pharisees were considered the most strict when it came to the law. Though Jesus discredited their allegiance to the law of Moses as given to Israel by God, they nonetheless had attained the law of legalism, practicing, going beyond the laws given to Israel by the Lord God himself. And according to Acts 22, Paul studied under the highly respected scribe or rabbi named Gamaliel. He was an educated man. He knew the law, schooled in it. This means that Paul formerly lived by the strictest practice of the law within the Jewish community. Let's see the Judaizers hold up to that, Paul is saying. And from this we can conclude that the practical application that Paul is making here in regard to the gospel, in regard to salvation, and that he has already stated, we take no confidence in the flesh. He's declaring, even though I had all of these credentials, they made not one contribution, not one, to my salvation because I take no confidence in the flesh. And as we apply this today, not by baptism can we be saved, not by ritual, not by even making a profession of faith, not by simply repeating a prayer of faith, not by taking communion, not by becoming a member of a church, not by practicing all these ordinances. None of those things cause us to be saved. We take no confidence in the flesh. In addition, salvation does not come by being born into a Christian family. Young people, pay attention to this. Because your parents are Christian does not make you Christian. We don't become Christian by becoming a part of a church in membership. So those of you that are starting the membership class next week, pay attention to that. Being a member of this church will not make you Christian. Becoming part of a denomination will not make you Christian. We cannot be saved by the most strict adherence to the Christian traditions by observing Christmas or Easter for heaven's sakes. Well, I went to the Good Friday service and I took communion. I must be one of them. Paul would deny that flatly. We take no confidence in the flesh. 
if salvation could not be earned by the very best of Jewish practices, Paul is saying, by the very best of Jews with the cleanest bill of health, we can't merit it in any way. And that is his point. This is the case that Paul makes with his own autobiography, his own testimony. And then he gets to zeal. Because this is an area that sometimes confuses the gospel today and evangelism and our reaching out to our religious neighbors. But they're so zealous. They're so passionate. They're so devoted. They speak about God. They're praying all the time. They're giving to their church. They're claiming to be Christian. Paul adds to this by now addressing his own zeal or devotion by which he pursued the faith that God had given to the nation of Israel. If the Judaizers wanted to promote their own devotion to the law of Moses, even, the, even through the most sacred of rituals, that of circumcision, Paul was prepared to put his own zealousness for the law against theirs by now passionately, or by how passionately he held to the law of the Jewish traditions. Even though Paul could look back at how zealous he was as a Pharisee and a Hebrew of Hebrews, he knew later that his passion was fully inadequate before the Lord and contrary to the purposes of God. What most significantly marked his zeal in his mind, interestingly enough, is how he persecuted the church of God. That's the striking feature that comes up immediately. Zealous, passionate, devoted, I was a man of the law, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee. And if you want to talk about my zeal and my heart of devotion, what's the thing that comes to his mind? How passionately he pursued the people of Jesus Christ. One of the passages that speaks so clearly to Paul's zeal during this period of his life from Luke's testimony is found in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, go there with me. Acts chapter 8, and look at the first three verses. <clears throat> this was covered just a few weeks ago in our Sunday school class. Acts chapter 8, beginning verse 1, Saul was in hearty, this is where his zeal is coming out. He was hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, and he put them into prison. You jump over to chapter 9. Verse 1, now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound, chained, and brought back to Jerusalem. This is Luke's account of Saul's zeal as a Hebrew of Hebrews. But I want you to bump ahead to Acts 26 because in chapter 26, Paul gives an account of himself to King Agrippa as he's giving testimony that on that road to Damascus, I met this Jesus 
I was introduced face to face with this Jesus Messiah who I had been persecuting zealously. Acts 26, beginning verse 9, So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Notice he's not calling him Jesus Christ there. He's looking back on his former days. He wouldn't have called him Jesus Christ. He was Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often and in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Paul is expressing in his own words his zeal for the Old Testament law. And chief in his zeal was the persecution of the church. This is the testimony of Paul's passion and his devotion, giving hearty agreement to the death of Christians, ravaging the church, dragging off men and women, breathing threats and murder, binding them for prison, trying to force believers to blaspheme Jesus Christ, furiously enraged against them, and he kept pursuing them. There's passion. There's zeal. And we can see that same zeal and passion in almost every religion on the face of the world today. Those that are passionate about their religion but who reject Jesus Christ as the only Savior. William Hendrickson in his commentary made this statement about Paul's comparison of his zeal to the Judaizers. Here too, writes Hendrickson, here too his advantage over the Judaizers was great. They merely proselytized. He, Paul, had been a persecutor. They made proselytes. Paul persecuted, even unto their death. What Paul wanted the church to know is that the passion of the Judaizers in their preaching meant nothing in regard to the deception of the message that he was prepared to use his own misguided zeal as proof against. It may appear that Paul is almost bragging as he goes through this autobiography. But he's not. He's just saying, in my own flesh, as an unregenerate man, I had absolute confidence in me. And then in verse 7 he says, but that is all lost at the cross. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 9, this expresses Paul's true heart in regard to his history. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Do you think Paul ever forgot what he did? No, he's not boasting to the Philippian church. If anything, he's hanging his head in shame and say, there was a day where in my zeal and passion for the law, I persecuted the very one that God sent to be my Messiah. Adding to his zeal in persecuting the church, Paul writes that he was so passionate about the righteousness that is found in the law that people would have said of him, I am blameless. I'm blameless, and I would have said it of myself, Paul is declaring to the church. In other words, his ethical, his moral conduct were exceptional as defined by the law. In chapter 3 and verse 9, Paul needed to clarify that his heart was corrupt 
and defiled during those years, not having a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith in Christ. But back then, I had a righteousness of my own according to the law that I felt I was keeping. And I would have held that righteousness up to any. Therefore, the testimony here refers to the passion that he had in keeping the law outwardly such that the Jewish religious community wouldn't have found fault with Paul. They would have recognized here is an exceptional Jew. Here's a man that holds to the law. And as we draw this to a close this morning, I hope we understand the religious devotion, good intentions, passion for God. None of these are adequate to save. None of them are adequate to even contribute to salvation. So as we reach out to our religious neighbors, their zeal, their devotion, their passion, their speaking of God, their prayer life, none of that matters apart from faith in Christ because those things cannot save. Perhaps the most difficult thing about our Christian witness is found in this area of denying salvation. In our preaching ministry of denying salvation to those who may wish to come to God on their own merits. Because this is what the Judaizers were attempting to do. And I say this because very often there are those folks involved in our lives that are very devoted to religion. So some, maybe even some of the most moral and ethical people that we're, we're related to or committed to or, or in neighbors with. And they can often be very passionate about giving to charities and ministering to the poor, and helping children. They do so because according to their theology, their salvation depends on that. And when we witness this kind of zeal and devotion, we see such people praying and speaking so fondly of God, it's hard for us to imagine that God will not accept their splendid work. It's helpful for our understanding of the gospel then to look back at Paul's inventory of his own life and declare of himself, I count all of these as loss. I glory, I boast in Christ and take no confidence in the flesh. That's how we need to approach the gospel. If we're going to be effective evangelists and true friends and truly love our enemies, they must hear the true gospel and not a distorted one. It also shows us, this study, this profile of Paul, shows us the power of the cross that we celebrate this morning, where man is totally incapable of securing the full saving favor of God. His son, Jesus Christ, is fully sufficient. And that's what we worship this morning. That's what we celebrate this morning. The true gospel declares that nothing more is required, that nothing more could accomplish but the sacrifice and death of Jesus Christ alone fully accomplished. For any sinner to presume to contribute to their own salvation is to suggest that the sacrifice of Christ was inadequate. It would be an offense to Christ. It's an offense to his gospel. Let me just leave you with those three points, and you can see them on your note sheet. No blanks to fill in today. Preaching the gospel is going to require boldness, and yet humility as well. Boldness or being dogmatic is considered arrogant. What Paul is saying here would, by some, 
be considered arrogance and bragging on himself. But Paul shows us the need for boldness in regard to the clear and uncompromised gospel, but spoken by Paul here with great humility in regard to his own testimony. He said, I did the very best I could and it was not adequate. And he said, so passionate was I that I don't even consider myself the most legitimate of the apostles. I'm the least because I persecuted the very thing that my soul needed the most. I persecuted the church of God. Number two, our Christian joy rests upon the pure doctrines of the gospel. Take away faith alone. Add our own works and we lose the security of our salvation. Human merit creates uncertainty. Uncertainty of the promise of eternal life. The forgiveness of sin and fellowship with God. If it's based on my own merits or my own merits are contributing, how will I ever know that good is good enough? And this is where faith alone declares we are not good enough, but Christ is. He's good enough. Third, remembering our past history is a memorial to God's grace. And I bring this up because Paul has an interesting presentation here, as we're going to move farther on in chapter 3. Down in verse 13, he says, I'm forgetting the things that are behind and I'm pressing on to the things ahead. Has he not just remembered the things from the past? Does it seem like a contradiction? Well, it may seem like it, but in the context of what Paul is saying, he's declaring, no, I haven't forgotten what I was. In fact, he said, I hold on to that remembrance and it keeps me humble I'm not the chief of the apostles. I persecuted the church. But he says, I forget them to the extent that they mean nothing in regard to reaching forward to Christ. They don't contribute in any way to my salvation. I'm pressing forward by faith alone, in Christ alone, and by his grace alone. Remembering our past, then, is a memorial to God's grace because our past declares we were never good enough. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We never want to forget that. And that we were made alive in Christ because of mercy, not because of merit. This is what we celebrate this morning, you and I as believers, as we take the bread and the cup together. Let's worship Christ now. Father in heaven, we thank you for this testament of your grace that is seen in your son's cross and in his sacrifice alone. May you be honored and glorified and your majesty revealed in your church as we proclaim together your glory and your greatness in the cross of your son. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat>